0: Welcome to Behind the Prose. This is our second excerpt from the Creative Nonfiction Writers Conference. It is the Ask an Editor panel moderated by Ellen Ayoub. We're going to pick up with her intro, and then you will hear some parts of where the panel is answering questions directly from the audience. Some of the questions you can't hear because people were... Um, talking off the microphone from the audience, but I um, think you will still be able to get something out of this excerpt, enjoy. I come from a slightly different background than some of my colleagues. I have over 20 years of experience with writing and design in academia and industry, and I have a master's of design from Carnegie Mellon University. Um, I'm very happy to work with Patty Fletcher, who is the managing editor of Creative Nonfiction and has been since 2004. And she's a co-editor with Lee on the book True Stories. Well uh, we also have Jessica Bylander with us today. She's a senior editor at Health Affairs and editor of the journal's Narrative Matters section of Health Policy Narratives. She's also a writer and contributes reported pieces to the journal. Prior to joining Health Affairs, she was a technology industry for the gray sheet. She's a playwright and writes frequently for the Washington Post Express, as well as doing other things. And we have Geeta Kotari, who is the nonfiction editor of the Kenyon Review. She is a two-time recipient of a fellowship in literature from the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts and the editor of Did My Mama Like to Dance and other stories about mothers and daughters. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in various journals and anthologies. She teaches in the undergraduate program at the University of Pittsburgh, where she's also the director of the Writing Center. So... They're here to um, answer any questions you have about what it means to be an editor. I'd like to start with one. I would like um, for Hattie and then Jessica and then Gita to tell us how they became an editor, what made them start on this path, and why they continue doing it. Oh. Yeah, I added another one from this morning. <laughs> you added a question <laughs> You keep it <morning>. fresh.
1: <laughs> um, so I... Uh, I came to editing in sort of a roundabout way, I guess. I was actually a Latin major in college, and after I graduated from college, the reason I was in Pittsburgh, I moved here to teach middle school Latin um, and English, which I did for almost a decade. Uh, And then I did the better part of a Master's of Fine Arts in Nonfiction at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where I met Lee and became familiar with the the Creative Nonfiction, which was more of a journal then. Um, And I started reading and volunteering and and then uh, somewhere along the way, uh, the previous managing editor left town, and we were then organizing a, a festival that was sort of an earlier incarnation of this conference. It was a little bit different, it was called the 412 Festival, um, and we called one day during the organizing of that. Um, I was doing some freelancing, and I stopped teaching, it was like I thought you could help. <laughs> and so I started helping, and that was, I don't know, 12 and a half years ago. Um but I think editing. Uh, so I do a lot of the editorial work on the magazine, especially. Um, I do some work with the books that we put out. Um, I do a lot of other things as well, including our um, a lot of our grant writing, um, things like that, um, helping out with things like that. So it's mainly, auditing, the main thing. Um, and I think what one of the things that I like about editing is that it. It's a little bit different every day. It's not at all for me a job where you get kind of bored. Um, usually So, <laughs> but I am almost never bored
0: in my job. So that's I think what I like about it. Down. Okay,
2: Jessica. Um, I came to it as a writer. Um, I've been interested in writing from a young age. So, um, when I was picking undergrad programs, I picked programs with strong writing um, focuses. So I went to Hopkins for the writing seminars. And after that, afterwards, I worked. At college for a year and then decided to go back to school for journalism. Um, So I worked for about five years as a journalist covering medical technology. Started editing a little bit, but was primarily a writer. And then, um, you know, the journalism field was just kind of difficult to find work and it was difficult to stay within the reporting field. So there was an opening at Health Affairs, which I was familiar with from covering their briefings and everything, but would never have thought of. There and similarly, I think I was there for um, maybe ten months when the editor of Near Matter resigned. Um, I guess retired, and so I immediately put my name in the ring because that's one of my favorite sections of the journal. It's one of a lot of people's favorite sections because it's stories um, and you know very readable. So I started doing that, and I've been doing that for the past about four and a half years. Um, and I um, also do some of the other editing of research papers, and we also do book reviews. So I work on those and some blog um, content as well. So um, it's, editing is hard, it's, it's so different than writing, and um, I do think it makes me a better writer. Um, maybe more critical of myself, also, which can be, um, be one downside, but I think my favorite thing um, is getting to work with so many different writers, and um, just recently I've been working with Abraham Burghazy on a piece, and I, I just think, you know, in what other capacity would I have uh, the opportunity to do that? And it's awkward to sort of give some advice.
1: You know, <laughs> <have their base. laughs>
2: so, um, yeah, I can't
3: imagine a, a field where I would have that opportunity. Oh, I'm instantly um, I came to um, editing and writing very indirect way. There was nothing that I did in college that suggest that I would up here. I didn't major in English. I majored in Um, government, as it was called, and Afro-American Studies. So that was where I started. And um, after college I went into publishing in New York for a while. Um, That's where I was from. For no other reason honestly. I just happened to be in New York So, I had no direction, completely unlike you. (laughs) I was just drifting along. And none of that has anything to do with how I ended up at the Kenyon Review, except to say that um, Kenyon was just a chance thing. I had sent them an essay in 1998. They didn't even have a nonfiction editor at the time. I sent it to the fiction editor. It was accepted after a process of revision and me writing it. And um, then nothing, I did nothing with them for a long time. And in 2004, I won a teaching award at Pitt and I had money to spend somewhere. And I thought, well, I'll spend it on something that might make me better at what I do for my day job and maybe I'll learn something about writing too. And um, so I went to Kenyon in 2006, I guess it took me two years to do, or to be talked into it. And um, I took the workshop and then I went back the following year as a fellow and um, took the workshop again, but also assistant teacher which mainly meant taking the workshop. And um, that was the same year that the fiction editor, Nancy Zafris, decided to go work for the Planet O'Connor out at the University of Georgia Press. And um, basically I was the editor-in-chief had worked with me on this piece a few years ago. He'd also accepted a story I'd written, so he knew that I wasn't an awful person or difficult to work with. Um, He knew my aesthetic and um, I think they interviewed a couple of people for the job, but I honestly don't know. Honestly, to to be completely frank, it was just me being in the right place at the right time totally by chance. It it was blocked. Then a few years ago, um, Kenyon decided to um, really get into nonfiction and make nonfiction a more prominent part of the journal, and wanted to attract more nonfiction um, uh, submissions. So they asked me if I'd be willing to, to work as a nonfiction editor, and they brought someone else in to do fiction, which was great because um, I I read fiction when I teach, so getting a chance to work in nonfiction and read essays and, and um, do something different for the Kenyan part of my job or my life um, is actually really helpful. Um, And that's that's where we are right now. And why do I keep doing it? Um, That's an interesting question because I don't do the same kind of line editing that Hattie and Jessica do. Um, I just... uh, Mostly I'm reading and I'm sending things on to David Lin, the editor-in-chief who's moving the final decisions or making suggestions for revising. I've had a couple of pieces over the years where so I've done a heavy line edit um, after consulting David. But um, I get really, really excited when I find a new writer. I think that, for me, is the best thing. Um, a writer who's new to Kenyon or a writer who is new to me and getting a chance to uh, send that work on to another editor to read and talking about it with other people they all are in Ohio I'm here so we don't meet in person really but um, having those conversations online about writing is, is really exciting and feeling like I'm part of a community for a long time I felt like I wasn't and that community has been really, really important to me, both as a writer, editor, and I just like to be part of
0: that. I wonder if um, you can elaborate on your process a little bit. You mentioned passing things on to David. Right. Um, So I think it would be interesting for everyone to hear your three different perspectives on your typical process of working with an author once you've accepted their work.
3: So our process is um, not much of a process once (laughs) we've accepted a piece. Um, we get we get about eight thousand submissions a year. Um, eight hundred of those will be about will be nonfiction. Most everything we accept is pretty much ready to go. The writing you get is phenomenal. I it breaks my heart um, to send out most of the rejections I send out. We get a lot of a lot of good writing. Um, but it doesn't break my heart too much because usually I sent directly to me by the managing editor Um, and those I read and then often get another editor David will
0: tell you be And uh, here's the part where there is an unintelligible question from the audience, and here's the answer. No,
3: it's fine. It's a good yeah. recap. <laughs> oh, nice be doing that. <laughs> um uh, we talked about online classes, um, that we had both taken online classes. Jessica yeah. and I had both taken online classes, and they can be very helpful. So there are different ways to find that kind of attention for your writing. You know, I think years ago, when everything just came through the mail and things moved at a slower pace, editors at literary journals anyway could mentor a writer in a way that I don't think is necessarily possible. But there are other avenues for that kind of mentorship.
2: Yeah, the wor- I, I think the workshops are a great investment. And for to do, uh, both levels, um, either mentorship or editing, it can, it can be higher than 3,000. It can be five, ten thousand, 10,000. And you know, if that lands you a book deal, then it was worth it. <laughs> so, and you learn a lot in the process. But the the workshops, I think, can give you a more economical way. And we have been talking about how, um, at least uh, in the rejection letters I send out, sometimes a writer will write back and say, "Well, but why are you rejecting it? And where else would you recommend um, that we send it?" And um, and I definitely we want to help and we want to support, but there isn't always. Sort of the time for that kind of back and forth, and I may not know what would be a better fit. Mm -hmm. That's sort of very unique to unique to you, and um, I think you definitely take the time to do that. So maybe there's a sense that we know all of the journals that are accepting narrative medicine writing, but I think um, you know your piece, and and you can sort of do some research to find that out. And just because it's not a good fit for us, it's not a fit for another journal, and we'll let you know that. But we. I don't think we can find that state for you. Do you have a question?
3: To follow up to your question, um uh, talk a little bit about the criteria that any of us progressing had to pay for uh a So you want me to talk about the criteria you you'd use to to hire someone, what you would be looking for? So, um I think it's helpful to find someone either um, is associated with an organization in some way or has had experience in publishing that they can point to. Um, I think it really, beyond that, I think it really depends on what you yourself are looking for, right? If you want a coach, someone who's going to check in with you every two weeks, keep you on track with your project. Um, that's one type of um, relationship. If you want someone who's going to line edit your work, um, that's a different type. of You have to be very clear when you're interviewing that person or talking to them what you want. Um, you can ask people, do they have other writers they've worked with? Um, some, some people will provide testimonials. Um, if you go to a writer's website, most writers except me have websites. Um <laughs> don't even really have a real Twitter handle um, you know uh, I they'll have websites where they might have testimonials um, from other writers uh, you know if you read an acknowledgments page in a book that you like there might be someone in there that the writer thinks um, so it's very personal and it really depends on what you're looking for um, and you know my criteria I'll tell you for me One of the things, because I know structure is an issue for me, I had written a novel, and I had no help, and I worked on it for years. Um, I had my agent read it, but, you know, an agent's job is not to go through your book and totally rewrite it for you. Um, And I realized that I had this problem, so when I launched into my next book project, I was very specific. I said, this is what I want help with. And um, the person I'm working with actually asked me to submit some writing, and that's what most editors will do. They will ask you for a submission before they say yes.
2: Yeah. Sometimes we'll do a free consultation on 30, 30 pages or 50 pages, and I've done something where I think maybe for a hundred dollars, I did the editor looked at
0: 35
2: pages, and then it's an office of the entire book, and we had a conversation about it, and she gave notes, and based on that, I could tell it would have been a fine working relationship send her the whole book, and I decided not to go that route, but I think there's a lot of
1: ways to get a taste of what services they provide and then decide whether it it's a good fit. Right, or you can pay for sort of a sample edit, and I think at the end of that, that's better than just kind of entrusting book to someone right. that you don't know, you know, sort of, and I knew this. Person, how this gonna go, right, Isn't helpful or if the person I don't know if simply like misinterpret the way you're writing things and turns them into something else then you know, it's not something you want to trust with your whole book. Um, and you know, try and I, I think that's you know, sometimes like the a cost of doing this thing is finding the
0: right? It's like going
1: on a trip where you like I don't know, go on vacation with a person or something, right? Like <laughs> you really out, learn about the like, men right,
2: like, well, we had so.
0: a question here
3: first.
1: So the question, just to repeat, um, for the podcast, is uh, that the world of literary publishing and journals has kind of changed a lot in recent decades, and there are tons of outlets, and uh, I guess the question is really how each of our publications kind of fits into that <laughs> going to recap. A lot of um,
3: well, uh, Kenyon, Kenyon Review has its reputation um, over 75 years of publishing, and um, we stand behind it. Um, so that's the good thing. That's how, you know, we sort of ride that reputation, right? That's there's a way in which um, older schools have been forced to find um, other avenues for patients to stay current and visible and um, available. opinion review online has been great because it's a print subscription, and that I mean, a lot of our international <laughs> journal as we
1: yeah, definitely there's a
2: competition for content, especially when the online bloggers, outlets. We
0: want the best pieces. I
3: think for us, we just
0: compete based on our audience.
2: And it's the New York Times to get their audience. I can see why that's a draw, but we have audience how are we?
3: It's really hard, I think. Uh quick stuff better. So always kind of quality, even off the
1: blog. I would say I mean I think that's uh we this is something we talk about a lot. I think and a lot of, not everything we publish, a lot of what we publish is um, often we're looking for connections, but they're kind of personal narratives. Last year's conference, I here is was a lot about... and they kind of include her pain and um, they didn't really rush to screen anything that they're all day. and then they music- um, so we published this piece great amazing um, sort of piece that takes all these deep through like Leslie Jameson, and you know, sort of all yeah. over the place and he happened to be a writer for the Atlantic and he said editor for that was yeah. oh, that's great um, and they published a piece that was maybe a thousand words sooner. Um, and they did, it was really sort of interesting. They really, they went kind of line by line. They cut out a lot of, there were there were a lot of things they where it would be like there were two adjectives and they cut one better. You know, it was a fascinating experience from like an editorial standpoint that way. And then the where they just cut out whole sections that were sort of his more reflective, like the whole end of the story was gone, which was really about like Men, and it was about how sort of still their processing experience. Like it was a much more narrative-driven piece form, which you probably read online. Online, and, and the, the other thing published time, and the headline on the piece that it published was was why doctors don't take women's pain seriously, (laughs) (laughs) which, of course, like, if you saw that in your Facebook feed, like, you clicked on that, right, Right. but I think what's also interesting about that is that if you clicked on that in your Facebook feed, like, you sort of almost didn't really need to read the story, like, I think a lot of those personal things online, and it's, it's in the way they're presented, but it's also kind of And I think, like, <laughs> to give it away. <laughs> really empowering and amazing, and people can share all kinds of experiences, and I think that with a lot of life experiences, of just seeing that someone else has had that experience can actually be a tremendous, empowering, like, oh, I'm not alone in this, right? Like, that's the, the good side of the internet, it's like, oh, that that thing that I thought was so weird and quirky and just happened to me, like, that's a There's thing, the right, like, it. that's a whole thing, and I can survive this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that is great, but I think a lot of the stories that we've published, like, you know, and Keona's it's like slow reading almost, slow food movement, but it kind of is just like bigger immersion. It's not, they're not sort of reward really assuming. Takeaway is not kind of always immediately. Um, but I think that's okay, and I think there's an appetite for that.
2: There's a big appetite for long reads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't always know where to find them. There's a trend now also,
1: you at the top
2: how, how many minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's nice It's so sort of maybe you save it for your muco or digestive. I think, I think there's an
0: aspect to old. Well, we're just about out of time. So that was a really good transition to end the session. Uh, are there any final questions? Well, Thank you so much for your time today.